Guardian Unlimited. Or the questions to the Prime Minister, Dr. Phyllis Starkey. Mr. Speaker, sir, before listening my engagements, I must ask the House once again to join with me in sending our profound condolences to the family and friends of those soldiers that have fallen in the last week. Lance Corporal Paul Sanford from the 1st Battalion, the Worcestershire and Sherwood Foresters, and Guardsman Neil Downs from the 1st Battalion, Grenadier Guards, who were killed in Afghanistan in the last week, where our troops are performing a magnificent and heroic job in fighting the Taliban. And also our condolences to the family and friends of Corporal Rodney Wilson from 4th Battalion, the Rifles, who was killed last week in Iraq on a search and detention patrol, and who, as the House may know, showed such immense bravery under fire to help his colleagues. We pay tribute to all of them and to those who are still serving our armed forces in Afghanistan and Iraq. I'm sure the whole House will also wish to join with me in sending our condolences to the family and friends of PC John Henry, who was killed on duty on Monday. And his death highlights the dangers that our police officers face every day in their task of protecting the public. And we send our profound condolences to his family also. Mr. Speaker, so this morning I had meetings of ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in the House, I'll have further such meetings later today. Dr. Starkey. Can I associate myself with the Prime Minister's expression of condolence? <coughs> Last week, figures were released for March on the percentage of NHS hospital patients treated within 18 weeks of GP referral. Milton Keynes General Hospital in my constituency was among the top 10 hospital trusts in the country. With 73% of patients treated within 18 weeks. This is obviously a credit to the hard work of the hospital staff, but also to this government's investment in new buildings, new operations. The Prime Minister will know that Milton Keynes is an area of high housing growth. Will he assure me? Well, first of all, can I uh, give my congratulations and my congratulations to Milton Keynes General Hospital for the outstanding work that the staff um, are doing there in, in order to make sure that, that uh, over 70% of the patients are seen within within 18 weeks, and, and also to, to emphasize that, as we can see from the waiting times and waiting list figures today, this 18 weeks, of course, is not just on the basis of the old inpatient list. It is the outpatient, the diagnostic treatment, and the inpatient treatment. And for all of that, to have 18 weeks is a magnificent achievement. And this is en route to, for the end of next year, 18 weeks as the maximum door-to-door, -door, from the GP to the operation, for everybody in the country, it will mean effectively the end of waiting as we know it in the National Health Service. It is of enormous importance to the country, and it is, of course, a great tribute to those working in the NHS. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to Lance Corporal Paul Samford, Corporal Rodney Wilson, and Guardsman Neil Downs, who died serving their country. I also endorse what the Prime Minister said about the dedication and the commitment of PC Jonathan Henry, and we all send our heartfelt condolence and sympathy to his young family. For months, the government has been briefing the tabloid newspapers that they would introduce Sarah's Law. The headlines reported stunning victory, and Sarah's Law will start in months. 
This afternoon, the Home Secretary will announce that Sarah's law will not be introduced. Is the Prime Minister at all surprised that the, that the press are cynical about his government? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, uh, let me say to him, what we said was that we would investigate uh, the possibilities of greater disclosure. And we have indeed investigated, and my right honourable friend will make his announcement later today. But I can tell him that we are proposing that there will be circumstances where members of the public will have the right to request details of possible sex offenders for the first time. So it is true it does not go as far as what is currently happening in the United States of America, but it is a change in practice. It is sensible to take this a step at a time, also to see how it works in practice, because it's important that at the same time as we're doing everything we can to protect young people um, against sex offenders, we are also making sure that we protect the proper liberties of people in this country. I have to say to the Prime Minister, he knows exactly what his government was doing and he knows exactly how disgraceful it can be. And I have to tell him, I have to tell him they're at it again today. The headlines of the tabloids today scream out chemical castration for paedophiles. If you listen to what the Home Secretary actually said on the radio, it's about giving a few of them Prozac pills. Now, let's look at something that would really make a difference in terms of... Let's look at something that would really make a difference in terms of stopping sex offenders preying on children. After the, after the dreadful Soham murders, after the Soham murders, there was the Bichard report, right? That report recommended a system. That report recommended a system for the police to share information so we can stop more sex offenders more quickly. The Home Secretary said this information sharing system would be ready this year. Can the Prime Minister tell us whether that promise will be kept? First of all, let me just remind him of what Sarah Payne said about what the Home Secretary will announce, which is that she said it is a massive... Well, I, I don't think it is wrong to discuss this with somebody who, for very obvious reasons, has got a very particular interest in knowing what we're about to do. And she said it is a massive step forward. If you have a child or look after a child, you have a place you can go and have some access to details about paedophiles. You don't have full access, but you have some access. And it's also been welcomed by Dame Mary Marsh, who's the director of the National Society for the Protection of Children. So it is a sensible, worthwhile step forward. And as for the measures that were recommended by the Bichar Inquiry, it is precisely for that reason that we do have systems that share information far better. All the time what we're trying to do, however, is improve this in the light of experience. We will continue to do that, but we have acted on the recommendations of the Bichar Report. I have to say, the Prime Minister has completely failed to answer the question. The fact is... Yeah, the fact is... The fact is that the Home Secretary told us this system would be in place this year and it isn't going to be. And isn't this completely typical of the way this government operates? Initiatives, initiatives that are never going to happen are endlessly spun to the media. But when it comes to serious measures that would really help protect our children from sex offenders, this government's completely incompetent in introducing them. So, will the Prime Minister confirm today that the full system of information sharing recommended by Bichard will not be introduced for another three years until at least 2010? Yes or no? We are building up the system of sharing information the whole time. No, it has to be done in a way that is careful to protect the interests of everyone concerned. But when he says that we have done nothing, but we have done nothing on sex offences, let me just remind him that 
The Sex Offences Act of 2003 created and redefined over 50 sex offences and set tough new maximum sentences. We set up the Sex Offenders Register. For the first time, the Criminal Justice Act of 2003 allows us now to give indeterminate sentences for those who are the most dangerous or violent or sexual offenders. And what did he do when that act came before Parliament? He voted against it. So, I'm afraid... We have consistently, well, that is true, and that is the single most important thing we can do. So for the first time, we have a situation where we can keep those who are a threat to the public behind bars, and when it came to the tough decision, he ducked it. Mr Speaker, with reference to what the Leader of the Opposition has just said about press coverage, why did my right honourable friend pull his punches in speaking about the press yesterday? <laughs> Is he not aware that over these years a huge proportion of press coverage of politics consists of fiction, yeah. propaganda yeah. and gossip? <laughs> Order, Let the right honourable gentleman speak. Uh. A serious deterioration from the standards when I worked as a political journalist in this house. Um, well, yesterday, uh, yesterday I made uh, my point uh, in my way. Um, Today, my right honourable friend makes it in his, and I don't think there's anything more to add. Sir Lewis Campbell. Once again, may I join the Prime Minister in his expressions of sympathy and condolence. On Monday, the Prime Minister told us that the government was cooperating fully with the OECD inquiry into the Saudi Arabian arms contract. Can he tell us today which minister is answerable to the House for the decision to withhold information from that inquiry in relation to payments made by the Ministry of Defence to Prince Mandar? First of all, uh, the information that is given to the OECD, it was a serious fraud office decision as to whether to do that. And let me make it clear that the criticism of the Attorney-General in relation to this is completely and totally unfair and wrong. And let me also say to him, that if he wants to blame anyone for this, he can blame me, and I'm perfectly happy to take responsibility for it. And let me explain why I gave the advice I gave. First of all, these allegations are strenuously denied by the Saudi royal family. Secondly, if we were then... Oh. If we were then going to conduct an investigation that might last two, three years into these allegations that, frankly, I think would lead absolutely nowhere, what it would lead to is the complete wreckage of a relationship that is of fundamental importance to the security of this country, to the state of the Middle East, and to our relationship with countries in the Middle East. That's why I took the decision. I don't regret it then, and I don't regret it now. Sir Mayor Campbell, the Prime Minister is taking responsibility. Can you tell us what payments have been made since 2002, what he knew about these payments and when he knew it, and what legal advice he took about these payments after the law changed here in 2002? And finally, whatever happened? 
Whatever happened to Robin Cook's foreign policy with an ethical dimension? First of all, I don't negotiate these contracts, although I may say I'm delighted that we managed to win that contract, which protects thousands of jobs in this country, thousands upon thousands of jobs in this country. But secondly, let me repeat to him again, I was asked for my advice as to what damage this investigation would do if it continued. I gave that advice because of the huge importance of working with Saudi Arabia on the Middle East peace process, on counter-terrorism, on the situation in the Middle East. I stick by that. And the idea, frankly, that such an investigation could be conducted without doing damage to our relationship is cloud cuckoo land, which is, after all, the natural habitat of the Liberal Democrats. Later today, my honourable friend, the member for Paisley and Renfrewshire North, has a 10-minute rule bill which aims to extend the Gangmaster Licensing Act provisions to the construction industry. Is the Prime Minister aware of the terrible impact gangmasters are having in this country on the construction industry in terms of intimidation, violence and illegal deduction of earnings? Will the Prime Minister join us in outlawing this illegal act? Well, we will certainly uh, consider very carefully what, it, what is in the private member's bill. And my honourable friend will know that we've, we've introduced certain protections already. I think it's fair to say there are still concerns about the activities of some of the gangmasters. It's important we keep it under review. So I can't give them a commitment, I'm afraid, on the bill today, but we will certainly consider very carefully both the bill and the debate that follows. Steve Webb. Thank you, Mr Speaker. For decades there has been talk of a seven barrage or similar scheme. The Prime Minister has now been in office for another ten years where there has been a lot more talk but precious little action on this particular scheme. If the government was serious about renewable energy, would we not by now be harnessing the tidal power of the River Severn? Yes, it's absolutely right, but but we we do have to make sure that it can be done on on a cost-effective basis. We do have to make sure that we are able um, to do it in a way that is going actually to provide the renewable energy that we want. And at the moment, we have not been able to find a satisfactory way through. Um, But we will continue to look at what we can do. And in principle, of course, we want to see it happen. But it has to be done in a way that's cost-effective. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Does my right honourable friend agree with me that the best quality mental health care is provided by multidisciplinary teams of professionals, all working together in the best interest of the patient? That the amendments made to the Mental Health Bill in the House of Lords were not made in that spirit, and that people with serious personality disorders can benefit for, from treatment in a modernised health, mental health service. Well, well I, I, I mean, I, I think b- before uh, honourable members opposite shout out, we should just understand the seriousness of, of, of this because there are around 1,300 suicides, 50 or more homicides each year by people in touch with mental health services and about almost 15,000 people under compulsory powers at any one point in time under the Mental Health Act of 1983. Now, the reason we have introduced the Mental Health Bill is because we believe we do need to give greater protection to the public as well as for those people who are um, mentally disordered. And I would just read out what Jane Zito and the Zito Trust have read to me today, that nearly 15 years, she says, have passed since my husband, Jonathan Zito, was killed. I firmly believe that these measures in the bill are both balanced 
and necessary. We do have a duty here as this House to protect the public. This House of Commons has given a very clear view, and I think it should be now upheld. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr Speaker. In the last few days, members of the Prime Minister's Cabinet have called for the trade unions to be given more money, more power, on some occasions both. Does the Prime Minister agree that they're all wrong? Um, I don't agree, obviously, in changing uh, our our trade union laws. Um, But um, I think if we're talking about leadership campaigns, I might remind him of what he said when he ran for leader. Consistency in politics is vital. And he then proclaimed his support for grammar schools and selection. So I think rather than him worry about our deputy leadership campaign, I think he should worry about his own leadership. I, I, I know that the Prime Minister... I know that the Prime Minister doesn't want to talk about the deputy leadership campaign because the contest looks like it could achieve the impossible, which is to make the current uh, deputy Prime Minister look like a cross between Ernie Bevan and Demosthenes. Um, In the last few days... In the last few days, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland has said the new anti-terror laws could make us the equivalent of Guantanamo Bay. The Justice Minister has said we should review the Trident decision. Does the Prime Minister think that they are both wrong? No, I don't agree with either of those two statements. Um, But just to return to leadership for a minute, can I give the House an update on the married couples allowance? Because where we left it, as honourable members will recall, is that the Tory policy was that married couples uh, would get this married couples allowance without children, but gay couples had to have kids. (laughs) However, the leader has now clarified the position. He says the married couples allowance, it could be something to do with married couples. (laughs) I think the Prime Minister should focus... I think the Prime Minister... I'm there. The Prime Minister should focus on the big picture, which is we're on the way up, and he's on the way out. Now, only a couple more goes left. I'm going to miss him. I'm going to miss him. In the last few weeks, his ministers have told us they want to increase taxes, they want to hand power to the trade unions, and they want to end reform. The whole thing has been one long lurch to the left. They're even arguing about how much money you should be able to spend on a handbag. Now that this contest is looking like a cross between Big Brother and the Muppet Show, could the Prime Minister answer this? Which one's he going to vote for? Actually, no, I am going to focus on the big picture. And I say this with the greatest respect to all my colleagues who are standing for the Deputy Leader. The leadership is the important thing. We will have a leader... We will have a leader who is strong. That side has a leader who bears the imprint of the last person who sat on him. Uh, Tony Lloyd. Thank you. My my, my right honourable friend will will be aware that when large organisations like Sony find that their, their copyright has been breached, they're very quick to use the law. Would, my, would the Prime Minister agree with me, though, that when Sony used uh, images of Manchester Cathedral as part of a game which extolled gun violence, this was not only in bad taste, 
it was also very, very insulting to uh, not simply the Church of England, but to people across the land who think it's inappropriate for big corporations to behave in this way. Well, I, I uh, agree with my friend. I think it's important that, that, that any of the, uh, the companies who are engaged in promoting um, this type of good um, have some sense of responsibility and also some sensitivity to, to the feelings of, of others. I think this is an immensely difficult area, the relationship between what happens with these, these games and its impact on young people. I have no doubt this debate will go on for a significant period of time, but I, I do agree with them. I think it's important that people understand there is a wider social responsibility as well as simply a responsibility for profit. Does the Prime Minister believe it is right that on the one hand he and his government should be critical of the Sudanese regime's butchery in Darfur. Yet on the other hand, at British military establishments, Sudanese military personnel are receiving training as recently as April of this year. I, I, I'd have to look into that fairly carefully, if, I'm, if I may say so, before I, I agree with the premise behind uh, his question. As far as I'm aware, any training that we give to the military of whatever country is training that, that also upholds respect um, for law and order and human rights and so on. And I, I simply don't know about the particular instance that, that he gives, but let me tell him that we are continuing to put all the pressure we can on the Sudanese government to come into compliance with the international community's recommendations. And over the next couple of weeks, if there is not action by the Sudanese government, we will be tabling a United Nations Security Council resolution. Don Butler. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Is my right honourable friend aware of the good work that the trade unions, the church leaders and the Mayor of London is doing to try and secure a London living wage for all new procurement contracts? Yesterday, an indefensible decision was made to try and block the London living wage being paid to cleaners of our fire stations by the Tory vice chair. Oh. It just goes to show that no matter what way the leader of the opposition parties here, they are still the same old Tories. Yeah. That seems, that seems a very reasonable comment to me. Um, I mean, I, first of all, let, let me uh, also point out that, that the minimum wage has now brought benefit to over a million people in this country in terms of raising their, their living standards and their wages. It, it particularly helps women. And, of course, I think it's, it's excellent uh, that London is focusing on paying the living wage to the cleaners. And I very much hope if the uh, right on gentleman can assert a bit of control over his party that they reverse their position. <laughs> James Gray. At the end of the G8 summit, when President Sarkozy was asked about the Euro Constitution, he said, and I quote, Tony Blair and I have just agreed on what might be the framework for a simplified treaty. That's quite something. Simultaneously, the Foreign Secretary said that nothing that you could really call negotiations had taken place. Which is true, and if it's Sarkozy, what was the agreement? We are obviously trying in advance of the summit next week to gain allies and to coordinate positions with those who also do not want a return to the constitutional treaty but want a return to a conventional amending treaty. And it is sensible for us to build allies in Europe. It's all very well for him shaking his head. But I can tell him, if I want to take him back ten years, in 1997, after what people will remember, the beef war, we had no allies in Europe, no influence in Europe, even the social chapter we couldn't bring ourselves to sign up to in Europe. Ten years on, we, we are managing to determine the agenda in Europe, and it's important we keep on doing it. Yeah. Roberta Blackman-Wood. <laughs> so 
Does the Prime Minister share my concerns and that of other County Durham MPs that the current uh, regional spatial strategy for the North East is potentially very damaging to economic and housing development in the county? And if he has a little more time in his diary in a few weeks, could he join us in trying to rectify the shortcomings in that document? Well, I certainly uh, look forward to that possibility. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, we'll, we'll look very carefully at what my honourable friend has said. David Heathcote Emery. Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister, in a recent newspaper article, deplored how the courts are using the European Convention on Human Rights. It's not not me uh, 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 objecting, it's the Prime Minister objecting to how the courts use that convention to strike down anti terrorism measures. But we can override that convention if we wish. Parliament is supreme in this matter. Why then did the Prime Minister sign the European Constitution containing as it does the much stricter and more extensive EU Charter of Fundamental Rights from which no exceptions are permitted and which would explicitly override the powers of this House? So will the Prime Minister, even at this late stage, repent his folly of, of signing that European Constitution and rejecting any revival which would bind this House in a way that even he now objects to. Well, first of all, Parliament is always sovereign. It is up to Parliament to decide always what it wishes to do, what it wishes not to do. So parliamentary sovereignty always remains. That is a constitutional principle. It's a constitutional fact. Secondly, in relation to the European Convention, of course, that is not to do, as he knows, with the European Union. It is a separate convention that we have been signatories to for over half a century. And we are, yes, we are worried about the way that is interpreted, which is why we're joining with other countries to try and get the ruling in this uh, Chalal case changed so that we can deport people who are a threat to this country. And thirdly, in relation to the European Charter, I will agree to nothing that allows Europe to alter our laws without the consent of this House. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Prime Minister will know that there is a consultation ongoing into the future of Remploy, uh, which suggests that many factories should be closed and that there should be a greater emphasis on trying to get disabled people into mainstream work. Will the Prime Minister guarantee, on behalf of the Government, that no person who is presently working for Remploy will be compulsorily made redundant? Will he ensure that there will be lifelong guarantee of terms and conditions, including final salary pension schemes? Yeah. Well, obviously the, the, the negotiation on, on the terms and conditions of employment must be a negotiation between um, Remploy and their employees. But we obviously are watching the situation very closely. He'll know the difficulty. I mean, I know many honourable members, particularly on this side, have Remploy factories within their constituency. Um, Remploy do an excellent work. They provide very important jobs for people. On the other hand, it is important that it modernises, that it goes through a process uh, of change, and that is strongly supported by many of those uh, bodies that represent um, those with disability. So we're going to have to try and match those two uh, principles up together, but I can assure him we will look very carefully to make sure um, that the terms and conditions of employment are given the utmost protection that we can. Bill Willis. Uh, all seven of North Yorkshire's members of Parliament of all political persuasions that all the district councils, every major business organisation and the vast majority of parish councils and individuals in North Yorkshire are utterly opposed to the Government's proposals for a unitary council based on North Yorkshire. 
Would the Prime Minister, as part of his legacy to the people of North Yorkshire, first of all agree to scrap these proposals, and if not, would he at least allow the people to have a referendum to decide for themselves yeah, yeah, what sort yeah. of local government they want? Yeah. Well, I, I think, it, as, 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 as he knows, that the, the final decisions have yet to be taken about which of the, the 16 bids for restructuring will proceed to implementation. And the, when the consultation ends, which it does on the 22nd of June, all proposals will be assessed very carefully against the five criteria we set out to councils last October. And that means proposals will not go forward unless we're convinced, one, that they're affordable, that they provide strong leadership, they improve public services, empower local communities, and also that they have a broad cross-section of support. So obviously the fact that um, seven members of Parliament are making their views uh, known in that way is very powerful. However, this is a decision that will be taken at a later point. And beg. Thank you, Mr Speaker. This year marks the 30th anniversary of the Industry and Parliament Trust, which I believe your patron. How useful does my right honourable friend believe that the Industry and Parliament Trust has been in fostering understanding between business and Parliament? First of all, let me uh, congratulate the Trust on its uh, 30th anniversary and say that I think in, in the uh, over 300 fellowships that it's provided um, and in the numbers of, of opportunities it's provided for members of Parliament to interact with business, it's done immense and valuable work over the years. And I know many honourable members on both sides of the House have enormously benefited from that work. Brooks Newmark. Yeah. Yeah. The Chancellor told a group of school children recently, and I'm quoting here, I did maths at school, but I don't think I was very good at it. And some people say it shows. Does the Prime Minister agree with this self-assessment? I think, I think the sort of, he obviously doesn't do irony in a very uh, good way, but let me just tell him, I think actually more important than when the, whether the Chancellor passed his, his, his maths exams with flying colours at school is the fact that he's Plus, passed with flying colours his time as Chancellor for ten years. And thank me, you know, I, I should thank him for giving me the opportunity of pointing out once again that thanks to this Chancellor, we have two and a half million more jobs, unemployment at its lowest level for over 30 years, interest rates half of what they were in the Tory years, and the strongest ever period of economic growth. I thank him for giving me the opportunity of reminding the House of it. Dr Ian Gibson. I have many questions. Uh, I'd like to uh, point out to the Prime Minister that there's a group called the Nuclear Veterans who worked on Christmas Island. There's some startling work out in New Zealand that shows there are genetic abnormalities associated with these brave men and women who stared into the face of atomic bombs. Would he agree we ought to be helping the people from our country who went out there yeah, and served yeah. for us yeah. and with them? Yes, of course I agree with that, and, and maybe I, I'm, I'm able to uh, correspond with them about what help we can give them. Order. Guardian Unlimited.